Well, good morning again and welcome. My name is Scott and I'm one of the pastors here. This morning we are embarking on a kind of new series for the summer. We're going to be looking at a portion of the book of Psalms. It's kind of right in the middle of your Bible, so it's uh, pretty easy to find. And um, hopefully this will be an encouraging time for us. And uh, and God will, will teach us some great things about himself and about ourselves in that study. I'm sure most of us here have had that experience where you're in, you know, in a conversation and uh, maybe you're discussing some current event, maybe you're discussing some political issue or talking about some personal matter, and then someone in the midst of that conversation says something and you think to yourself, exactly, exactly, because they've just put into words precisely what you were thinking. Maybe even better than you might have put it yourself. I've had that experience a number of times in a number of different situations. Reading a book where someone writes something that's you know, just right and you think, I-, I don't know how you could put it any better than that. Or perhaps reading a blog and there's some kind of debate going on and someone is making a point about whatever the current issue is and, and you know, she just nails it. Or sometimes I've been praying with a group of believers and there's something on my mind and heart, but I'm struggling to know how to express it. And then someone next to me starts praying about that very thing and says perfectly what I was feeling, but just couldn't find the words for. That sort of thing has been the common experience of countless millions of Christians as they've read the Psalms over the years. To be sure, it's not the only experience people have in reading the Psalms, but over and over again, one of the things that Christians typically find is that the Psalms put into words the very things they're feeling and thinking, and often the Psalms say perfectly what you meant to say or would have said if you'd had the words And the interesting thing about this experience with the Psalms is that it has been that way for all sorts of people and in a variety of circumstances, whether in great joy or great sorrow, confusion, doubt, fear. If you spend any amount of time in the Psalms, there is that aha moment. Indeed, there are many aha moments that are waiting for you. And this sort of universal response to the Psalms says something about its completeness. I think, as a book and about the breadth of its subject matter. Martin Luther, in reflecting upon the Psalms, had this to say. He said, The Psalms might well be called a miniature Bible, since in them is contained briefly all of the great themes that are found throughout the entire Bible. John Calvin said, There's nothing wanting in the Psalms which relates to the knowledge of eternal salvation. There's a guy named Louis uh, Burkhoff, a writer whose uh, works on theology remain kind of a, a gold standard for theologians to this day. And, and in his book where he's developing a complete systematic theology of the whole scriptures, uh, in that book he quotes the Psalms more than any other book with the one exception of Matthew's Gospel. Of course, much more important than Calvin and Luther's thoughts about the Psalms and Burkhoff's use of the Psalms is the way in which the New Testament uses the Psalms. When you do some checking there, you find that along with Isaiah, Psalms is the most frequently referred to book in the New Testament by Jesus, Paul, 
Peter, Luke, and John. Further and more contemporary evidence of the church's continued and special interest in the Psalms, uh, as evidence of that, you can go to most Christian bookstores today. Uh, You'll often find that they'll have a a lot of Bibles on sale amongst them. You'll find some pocket-sized New Testaments, and and a lot of times they'll include with that New Testament uh, the complete set of Psalms as part of the deal. Uh, In more liturgical churches today, where responsive interaction is part of the corporate worship, you'll find uh, in those places a number of readings that are really uh, a psalm or a portion of a psalm that is set out antiphonally. And then when you turn to the music of the church, you'll find that God's people continue to go to the psalms and set and then reset them to music because of their beauty and their poetry and their depth. We sing a number of them here on a regular basis. Sandra McCracken put on a concert for us a couple months ago that was all about the psalms. In short, the common experience of God's people over the centuries and right up to our own day is that they find the psalms to be special and even a favorite part of the scriptures, something that's proven to be particularly meaningful to them throughout their life as believers. And having said all that then, I want to spend the remainder of our time talking this morning about things that hopefully will help you in your own personal reading of the Psalms and which will actually whet your appetite to read the Psalms. So briefly then this morning, I want to look at some of the background information about them, some characteristics of the Psalms, and then some guidelines for reading and understanding the Psalms. Before we dive into all of that, let's uh, pray together. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your great kindness in saving us and making us your children, but also for your great wisdom in knowing that um, as children, we would need your sure guidance every day of our lives. And we thank you that in pursuit of that, you provide us with your spirit who lives within us, who also helps us to understand the words that you've also provided for us, the scriptures, in order that we might know how to love you and live for you and as yours. Help us now as we turn our collective attention to the Psalms, both this morning and throughout this summer together, to see what a beautiful provision they have been and continue to be for your people in every age. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Firstly, just a few kind of preliminary background remarks about the Psalms. Uh, When you look at the Psalms, it's important to remember that you're not looking at a work or a book of the Bible that was written by one single author, like Romans, but rather you're looking at a compilation, a collection of Psalms written by different authors, like uh, someone named David, who was a Jewish king. He wrote about 73 of them. A relatively unknown person named Asaph wrote some. A group of people known as the Sons of Korah wrote some. And there are are other authors as well. So it's a compilation. Further, not only are the Psalms a compilation of the works of different human authors, although the same Holy Spirit guiding them, but they're also a collection that comes from different time periods. The oldest Psalms uh, Psalms were probably written 3,500 years ago and the newest Psalm 2,500 years ago. That's a big gap between then and now. As one writer suggested, uh, try and imagine what it might be like for someone in the year 5000 AD to discover this morning's worship bulletin from South Baton Rouge. Think about how much you know, things change just from one year to the next 
And then imagine that going on for 3,000 years and then someone from that generation stumbles across this bulletin and tries to make heads or tails of it. That's what's going on for us when we look back at the Psalms. There's a similar length of time involved. And that means a lot of things, including this. Don't be surprised if sometimes not everything in the Psalms is immediately clear to you. Now, because Psalms is a compilation and and it came together over a very long period of time, it's not really a book that yields to a great deal by way of structural comment, but there is some structure to be found within it. So if you were to open up your Bible and start thumbing through the Psalms, you'd notice them things like this. The first two Psalms are really kind of an introduction to the whole thing. Uh, They're anonymous. We don't know who wrote them. Uh, the next, uh, and then after that, the, the, actually the whole of Psalms divides into five books. 3 to 41, 42 to 72, 73 to 89, 90 to 106, 107 to 145. Those divisions, where they come from? Those divisions are based upon some Hebrew wording that appears at the end of each section. So Psalm 41, 72, 89, 106 have this identical pattern at the end of them. Uh, this Hebrew phrase that is translated Amen and Amen. And kind of uh, marks off each of those sections as a unit. And then Psalms 146 to 50 also seem to have a different but common ending. And they appear to be a collection within a collection. So, uh, and so you have these five Psalms at the end that correspond to the five books. And uh, at the end of these five ones at the end, there is just this simple phrase. Hallelujah, which is praise Yah, Yahweh, praise God. And so there's a pattern there as well. So those are some kind of basic background structural comments about the Psalms. As we work our way through them uh, this summer, we're going we're gonna to hit some Psalms from each one of those books. I, I think uh, maybe not all of the books, but at least I think the first three we'll get through this summer. So we'll see some examples from each part. I want to think now just for a minute and get you to think with me for a minute about some of the characteristics of the Psalms. Uh, This will help us to read and understand them. I once attended a lecture at a college in Melbourne and the Old Testament professor who was giving the talk uh, tested his audience by asking this question. He said, what kinds of things do the Psalms talk about? And the answers uh, that he got were things like faith, trust, sorrow, Praise, prayer, joy, etc. In other words, he got back answers that were theological concepts, that were uh, abstractions or summaries. And to be sure, those things really are there. But this lecture went on to say that when you look at the actual language of the Psalms, the words, uh, what you see is that they often talk not about abstractions, but about things like rocks and trees and birds, and enemies, and swords, and spears, and life, and death. His point was simply that the Psalms are really very concrete. They're very earthy pieces of writing, and that is part of the enduring appeal of the Psalms for all of us. One of the ways that this concreteness and this use of images appears is is seen in the way that the psalmist will often employ an image or a metaphor, a picture of something real from his world, and he'll use that as a means of explaining or describing something about God or else describing some experience that one of God's people uh, is going through. 
So, for example, when David in Psalm 57 wants to communicate the experience, what's it like to be slandered? He doesn't merely say, uh, I've been slandered and it makes me really angry. He could have said that, but he doesn't say it that way. He says, um, I lie in the midst of lions that greedily devour the sons of men. Their teeth are spears and swords. Their tongues are sharp swords. You see what I'm saying? The psalmist frequently hands you a picture, not an abstraction. And in doing so, he allows you the opportunity to enter into the experience that he's describing. Having said that, however, the, the, you know, there is a frequent use of images and that the language of psalms is very concrete. Uh, and, and that's all true, but it's also true that there is a kind of vagueness to the psalms as well. That is, sometimes uh, we'd like to know more than we do. But it, in the end, it ends up being very helpful. When I say vagueness, uh, I'm referring to the fact that we sometimes know very little about the author of a particular psalm or of the situation in which he was writing or even the, the people to whom he was writing. Sometimes the author will often identify himself in a general sort of way with a class of people like the, the poor or the lowly or the righteous or things like that. And yet there won't be any specific statements of identity. Likewise, the enemies will often be described, but in general and not specific terms. So they could be practically anybody who's being referred to. But that then, I think, is precisely the point. Because by maintaining a kind of generality, the Psalms become for us not so much like an autobiography or a, even a historical record as they are a model or a paradigm. They're precise enough to be helpful and yet vague enough that people from all walks of life and in all kinds of circumstances can identify with them. Which is part of the reason why when people come to the Psalms, they often and easily see and hear their own stories, their own triumphs and their own failures and dilemmas depicted there. As they overhear the record of one of God's people in a situation similar to their own, they can get a bit of perspective and perhaps understand some things that they had not as yet been able to make any sense of. But the psalmist helps you to. Another characteristic of the psalms is that they contain a number of different types of writing. Um, but as one scholar has pointed out, even though there is a variety of styles of writing, or what they call genre, within the psalms, there are really two main types of writing in the psalms. There's lament and there's praise, and those are the two main things that you see there. What is a lament? A lament is a prayer or a song or a poem that's expressing pain, um, confusion, or anger. And it's drawing attention to what is wrong with the world. And then it's going beyond that to say, this is what is wrong with the world. Please, God, will you do something about it? Correspondingly, a praise is a prayer of joy or celebration that draws attention to what is good and right with the world, remembering what God has done and thanking Him for it. And you see, the presence and the prominence of those two kinds of uh, styles of writing and, and types of psalms uh, within the whole book is helpful because it helps us to know something about uh, how we can speak to God. It helps us to know how we can express the many and varied emotions that we feel as those who also and regularly experience the world's brokenness and our own brokenness. 
and yet who also in the midst of that can still see the hand of God and be thankful and hopeful for what he has done and is yet to do. In short, the Psalms teach us how to talk to our Father about the things that are going on in our hearts, good, bad, or otherwise. Now, if you were to read straight through the Psalms from beginning to end, you would discover that uh, those first three books are those subdivisions that I talked about, but those first three books, the Psalms 3 through 89, they contain more lament than they do praise. But then if you go forward from there, from Psalm 90 to the end, they contain more praise than lament. And that too is helpful for us because it patterns for us, I think, a biblical a what a biblical faithful prayer can and should look like, or even what the movement of our prayer should be, or the momentum of our prayer should be. In other words, when we come to God, we can always start right where we are, which is sometimes a good place, sometimes it's not a good place, but we can start right where we are with the emotions we're feeling and the situation we're in. We can approach God just like that, and we see that in the Psalms. And we can talk about and grieve about and mourn the reality of the fallen world and of our own hearts and the sins of those around us. And yet, as one scholar puts it, biblical faith is forward-looking, and so should be our prayers. So we can acknowledge the realism and the difficulty, but we can't stop there. And the Psalms don't stop there. As if those are the only things that are true. That the only thing that's true right now is that that everything is terrible in my life. Following the pattern of the Psalms, we need to keep going. Acknowledge those things? Absolutely. But keep going. Look ahead with hope and confidence and believing the promises of God and the reality that God is not finished and He is bringing things to a resolution because those things are equally true. As true as the heart things. And so we should be comfortable comfortable with lamenting those things that are wrong. It's okay to be honest with God about your feelings and fears and doubts and struggles. It's all right to say to God, I I don't get you. I don't understand what you're doing. Or why? Read Psalm 88. He's a big God. He can take it. But we can and we should also in the midst of those things and with the momentum of those things go on to recognize those things that are still good, that are right and that are true, even in the midst of so much that isn't. We can pray and hope for those things that one day will be good and even wonderful when Jesus returns. So the Psalms actually model the way they're set out and structured, actually model for us a movement that could be a pattern for our own prayer. Well, having looked briefly at some background information about the Psalms and at some of the characteristics, we can turn our attention just for a few minutes to some guidelines, things to think about as we read the Psalms, which hopefully will help us to read them better. For starters, and as we've already seen, the Psalms are first and foremost their poetry, which is something we should think about and keep in mind as we read. But even before all that, it does raise an immediate question, and that is, at least in the minds of some, you know, why poetry? Why are they poetry? In response, uh, one guy named Longman says this. He says, poems appeal to the whole person in a way that prose does not. 
Poems, through the use of imagery and other things, actually stimulate our imaginations. They arouse our emotions, they feed our intellect, and address our wills. Perhaps this is why poetry is the preferred mode of communication in the prophets, whose purpose depends upon capturing the attention of their listeners and then persuading them that their message is urgent. So the Psalms are poetic, and as a result, they get under our skin. Uh, They get past our defenses in ways that other forms do not. As an illustration of this, uh, think about Psalm 23, verse 1, which reads, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Longman says about this, he says, If you were to partially paraphrase just that first verse, you'd say that God takes care of us because he loves us and guides us in life. And, you know, the question is, why not say it that way? It's a more precise way in some ways. Indeed, the Bible in other places does say it in a straightforward manner. But here's the thing. The image of the shepherd speaks straight to our hearts more directly. We know how a shepherd lives with his sheep, tends to their every need, keeps them from getting lost, protects them from wild beasts. All of those characteristics and more, they come to mind when God is called a shepherd. It would take an entire page of prose to communicate what the psalmist has stated in a clause and with much less impact. So the psalms are poetry and they use these evocative images. And that's something we keep in mind as we read them. Indeed, And that actually by itself suggests a guideline for us as we read them. So when you're reading the psalms and you come to one of these images, it's helpful to not race through the psalm or race past the image, which is maybe the temptation but to actually stop for a moment and think about the image itself. Think about the picture that's being painted. Reflect on it. Put yourself in the picture if you can. Walk around, so to speak. Take in the view and see what you discover. We've already seen the imagery of a shepherd. Let's think about another image as an example. Uh, Next week, Lord willing, I want to look at Psalm 1. Um, together. And in that psalm, it starts out as a preview. I'll just say this. It starts out by talking about a person who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on it day and night. And then it compares that person to a tree that is planted by a stream that yields seasonal fruit and its leaf does not wither. When you come across an image like that, a tree by stream, seasonal fruit, leaf does not wither. Stop and think about it. It's a very concrete image. It's a very familiar image. You've no doubt been in settings just like that. So think about that image. And then ask yourself this question. How, how does that picture help me understand what is, it's being compared to or what's being compared to it? That is, the person who does not take counsel from the wicked, but who delights in God's law and thinks about it day and night. How does the image of the tree by the stream help you understand that person so described? Now, to be sure, not every image you find in the Psalms will be as easily accessible as that one, as has already been suggested. Some images might seem foreign to us, again, because of that gap and that distance and cultural distance, because the difference between Eastern and Western thinking Um, And so sometimes we need to look to Bible scholars to help us understand an image and how that original thing might have landed on its original readers. But still, as a general practice and rule, we can gain a lot by reflecting on the images that are there and trying to understand how they connect. 
So the, poet, the poetic imagery of the psalm suggests certain guidelines for how we should read them. And there's another prominent feature of Hebrew poetry that's not as obvious as the use of imagery. And it's not a feature that we see nearly as much in Western poetry. That's one of the reasons why we miss it. But Hebrew poetry, unlike much Western and more modern poetry, is different in that it does not depend so much on sound as much as it does on this thing called parallelism. Parallelism is everywhere in the Psalms. And so it suggests some guidelines for our reading. And what is that? What is parallelism? Simply put, it involves a repetition of an idea with a development of the idea. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Reflection of the Psalms, which is a really helpful book, let me just say that at the front end, very helpful book, but in that book he describes parallelism as saying the same thing with different words. And unfortunately, I think that's not quite right as there's much more going on than mere repetition. So, for example, look in Psalm 1 again, verse 1, it reads this way. Blessed is the man, and then there's three phrases, who walks in the counsel of the wicked, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So the psalmist, after declaring blessed is the man, then goes on to give us three phrases that describe the characteristics of this blessed man. Each phrase is at one level saying something similar. So C.S. Lewis is not wrong about that. But each one is also carrying the thought forward in some way. There's a development of thought from the first phrase to the second and from the second to the third. There's a movement from walking to standing to sitting. What's the significance of that movement within that psalm? What does the writer say? I'm not going to answer that today. But the point in walking you through all this is to say that the frequency with which you find this kind of parallelism in the psalms suggests another guideline for how we should read the psalms. So whenever you come across these parallel phrases, and they are absolutely everywhere in the psalms, ask yourself this. What is the first phrase saying? And how is the second or even third developing or carrying that idea forward in some way? In other words, ask this, the, these two questions. How are these phrases alike? And what is different about them? So there you go. A little bit about the background and the structure and the characteristic of the Psalms and some suggested guidelines for reading and thinking about and understanding the Psalms. We're going to see a lot more of that as we work our way through. Different things will come up in different psalms. But that should be enough to get us started. So as a kind of a brief postscript then, and as we are kind of wrapping up our time this morning on this, let me just say this. Um, We live in a world where experience rules. Where seemingly the most important thing more and more is what, um, what I feel like on the inside. It's subjective, it's internal, and in my judgment, it is dangerously untethered to anything but itself. Historically speaking, it may be that this present situation uh, is, among other things, a reaction to kind of a, a, to the sustained arrogance of a kind of scientific rationalism which was too reductionistic for too long, and that in the end was just too much for people to put up with forever. However, in reacting to those things, the pendulum has gone too far the other way. People want their experiences, they want their emotions, as Woody Allen put it, the heart wants what it wants. But what people don't want is to think about it very much. 
They don't want to think about why they want what they want, whether they should want what they want. They just want. We just want. All too often it seems to be feeling without thinking, emotion unchecked, passion unrestrained. But see, people can't live that way for long. Raw experience will burn itself out. Emotion will eventually reveal itself for the tyrant that it is. The preoccupation with the self and the journey inward becomes boring and ultimately meaningless. The beauty of the Psalms is that they are a corrective to all this because they aim at both the heart and the head, as one writer puts it. As you read them, you find very candid statements and concerns and sometimes very angry words that baffle you. But they're not mindless. It's not the ranting and raving of a lunatic. The strong emotions are held in check by even stronger truth. There's self-expression, but there's also self-restraint. In the Psalms, there's simply no separation of mind and heart. In the Psalms, the reality of God is repeatedly brought to bear on the experience of life. Longman again is helpful. He says, as you enter into the study of the Psalms, you're entering into a kind of sanctuary where you'll find an intense conversation between God and his people. A conversation in which we'll find at different times instruction, confession, lament, confidence, prayer, praise, wonder, doubt, and thanksgiving. A conversation that is reverent yet direct, intense, intimate, and above all else, it is honest. A Christian lady was once asked why she was so convinced of the Bible's authenticity, and she said, because it is the book that understands me. Notice it was not the fact that she was very clever and understood the Bible completely, but it was that the Bible understood her. That was her experience. As she read the scriptures, especially the Psalms, she was overwhelmed at how such an ancient book could so accurately reveal the content and character of her heart, point her to her need and to God's merciful provision for that need, and speak with such penetrating truth to a culture thousands of years removed from it. As we read the Psalms together this summer, it is my prayer that you will come to the same conclusions as that lady This is a book that understands me and points me to my creator. And then these songs will become your songs too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us so well and know us so well because you knit us together. That in providing your revelation for us, you give us a book like the Psalms, which shows us um, how we can talk to you and shows us how we can express what's really going on in our hearts and yet reminds us to remember, even in the midst of that, the one to whom we're speaking, uh, the one who has made promises and who is fulfilling them and will fulfill them completely. And so it calls us to honesty even as it calls us to perspective and balance. And uh, we thank you for the example and we pray, Father, that our own communication with you would be 
uh, at least as honest as that, and that uh, you would meet us there, and that you would point us to yourself through your Son. We look forward to the ways that you're going to do that, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll take up an offering right now for those who want to support this church or a number of ministries that we support together as a church. Thank you.